Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. Last month, the Chinese government approved a plan that would give mainland China the ability to crush any acts in Hong Kong that it deems a national security risk. Despite international outcry, the legislation will go into effect in September. In one of many responses by Hong Kongers, hundreds of theologians, pastors, and church leaders signed a statement accusing the draft decision of, quote, further depriving Hong Kong of freedom and human rights. The Christian leaders accused the Chinese government of destroying its promises and undercutting the city as an international financial center. At a time where, and I'm gonna quote from this statement, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, we fearlessly and solemnly declare the following confession and promise to our society, including our full embrace of the gospel of the kingdom, our sincere repentance towards the church's shortcomings, our absolute refusal to authoritarian government, and our determination to walk together with Hong Kong society, the statement said. The Christian leaders also included in the statement, a statement of repentance. And I'm gonna quote from that as well. Since the handover of sovereignty in 1997, churches in Hong Kong have been too focused on internal affairs. We seldom focused on and seek social justice, and we rarely spoke up for the oppressed minorities. When facing the authority's strong governance and the persecution and suppression towards the dissidents, churches often chose to protect themselves. They engaged in self-censorship and remained silent towards the evil deeds of the authority, with their only wish being the smooth and uninterrupted operation of church ministries. As a result, they turned a blind eye towards the raw dignity of the oppressed, as well as the deprivation of their basic rights. We ask for mercy from the Lord to forgive our selfishness, cold-bloodedness, and hypocrisy. May Jesus Christ's blood cover all our filthiness, give us a repenting heart to do the Lord's will, stop sitting on the sidelines, and vow to act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Last year, on Quick to Listen episode 162, we examined the Christian backstory of Hong Kong's pro-democracy protests, and that episode examined the Umbrella Movement and recorded it just weeks before protests began consuming the city. These are protests that have lasted for months. We wanted to pick up the story in Hong Kong since then. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson, editorial director at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, lots there, both from a geopolitical standpoint and also kind of from a church response standpoint, but I would love to get your thoughts about all of this. Yeah, I, you know, this is one of those weeks where, you know, my gut check, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have a, 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 a significant gut check this week. My encounter with this has largely been through the lens of editing Christianity Today and reading the uh, great stories that our news team has put together. This uh, article that we ran a couple weeks ago from uh, Brent Fulton, who's at China Source. Definitely remember watching the protests and 
being, you know, what kind of really perked up my ears. I mean, I was, you know, watching them as kind of a human being interested in the the human rights issues back in the day. But then when, you know, when I started <laughs> seeing the videos of the people doing the sing hallelujah to the Lord, oh, this is definitely an, an interesting CT story. And then trying to follow it since then, it's been interesting to see this take a back seat, I guess, in, in kind of you know, my personal attention and in my media attention, you know, as, as we've had a whole lot of protests here in the U.S. And I appreciated Brent's piece tying together some of the Hong Kong issues with some of the U.S. issues and the similarities and differences between the protests there. So that was that's mostly been my encounter. How about how about you, Morgan? As I just mentioned, these protests started about a year ago. I went on two major trips for CT last year, one to South Africa and another one to Singapore and Indonesia. I met a number of Christians from around the world. For folks that were from these particular areas, this is definitely something that I asked people about. And I guess what surprised me was a little bit of the range of difference that Christians had about these protests. So I did meet people who resented the protests, I guess, and did not feel like that was an appropriate place or resented the division that they were causing. I remember being in some conversations in Singapore with folks that seemed to really just dismiss what was going on or to allude to the larger pains that these were causing. Anyway, it was just interesting to to hear the different places where Christians were coming. One of the reasons we had discuss the Umbrella Movement was because some of the leaders of it had been very outspoken Christians. And so that was kind of my experience of it, was seeing what I saw to be Christian leaders in a much more prominent place than I necessarily had thought. To then find other Christians at these conferences that are going to in other ministry settings chiding the protesters, I guess, a little bit, was illuminating that there was probably more to the story there. Ted, who is our guest to discuss all of this with us? Our guest today is uh, Anne Julian Chu. Uh, she grew up in Hong Kong as a Canadian. She has an MDiv from Regent College in Vancouver, uh, as well as a postgraduate diploma in theology with the Alliance uh, Bible Seminary in Hong Kong. And she is now completing her Doctor of Divinity at the University of St. Andrews in the Center for the Study of Religion and Politics. She is joining us today because we have appreciated the many things she has written on the uh, theology of Hong Kong's protest movements. And so, Julian, welcome to Quick to Listen. Thanks for thanks for being on. Hi, thanks for inviting me. I'm super excited. Julian, I'm really just thrilled to have you on today. And I'm just wondering if we could start with kind of a general question, which is, you know, we read the statement at the beginning where these churches are making these very broad statements about what Christianity looks like in Hong Kong. But I'm wondering if you can give us some more details about what the role of the church looks like there and the type of presence that they have in Hong Kong. Well, I was thinking a little bit about that. And the statement that you were referring to, um, specifically in the Christianity Today article, was one of many statements that's been put out by Christians in Hong Kong throughout the past few weeks. And there were ones that were from the Evangelical Free Church, the Anglican Church, the Christian Missionary Alliance Church, and the Pentecostal Church, and the Lutheran Church as well. The statement that you have mentioned is from the Glorious Worship Ministry. This church started pretty recently, and it's a new form of church, so it doesn't actually have a brick-and-mortar building, but rather it's an online church. And so... Looking at its Chinese name, it looks like the idea came from the anthem of the protest, Glory to Hong Kong, because that's the name, its name in Chinese. It's a bunch of people who started this church that 
that were the first few listed in signing the petition. And they are pretty active in and pretty outspoken, including Andrew Whalenclock, who you've interviewed last year. It's very different from what it looks like in North America, because before I started in region, I didn't have as strong a sense of denominations, because in Hong Kong, people kind of went back and forth in different denominations, depending on like whether the church is close to their work location or like close to home or like their friends go to that church. And so generally, of course, people who tend to go to an evangelical church would still do that. CMA, Evangelical Free Church, there's not that much of a distinction. I mean, like, sure, if somebody's studying theology, they would know the difference. But like, as layperson, they probably won't look that much into it. It's quite different from like, in the States where you are like, oh, Southern Baptist, or like, that's kind of quite iconic. And you know what that stands for. And it's not like that at all in Hong Kong. The main difference is between evangelical and mainline churches. This is more broad stroke, obviously individual Christians, they would have different convictions and theology, but evangelical churches tend to look more more inside the church and how to evangelize and bring people into the church. Mainline churches tend to look more at social justice issues, which is why, for example, in the umbrella movement, there were evangelical churches that had some statements saying that people are not, they, they don't really want to have people, protesters coming in and using their facilities. While there were Methodist churches that were like, come in, charge your phones, like take a shower. That's the major difference between churches as an establishment, but individual Christians would be very different. Like as you mentioned at the beginning, the umbrella movement, it was started by prominent Christians. They are individual Christians who started it and obviously it could be because of their Christian conviction but they don't represent a church or a denomination most churches or denominations would not want to be spearheading any of this even if they are participating in it as individual Christians even if their pastors are doing that as well one of our stories reported that Christians are about 12% of the population in Hong Kong compared to about 7% in mainland China. Is it a situation where if a Christian happens to encounter another Christian, is that a surprising, oh, you're a Christian? Is it a surprising moment or is it is it fairly common? Do Christians kind of run in the same same circles and so it's not surprising to encounter a Christian? And then like when a Christian encounters a Christian, is there a that kind of joy of finding any kind of Christian? I know in, in places where the Christians tend to be a minority that do Nominational differences tend to be downplayed sometimes, but in other places they can be they can be heightened. Where the first question is like, "Oh, you say you're Christian. What kind of Christian are you?" What's the situation in Hong Kong? Kind of when strangers meet each other and find out that they're Christian. As you mentioned, some statistics in the beginning. I don't know where the statistics from Christians in mainland China came from because they're obviously Christians who attend house churches, and that probably can't be counted at all. And so how many Christians there are in China? Who knows? As for like meeting with other Christians in Hong Kong, I don't know because I grew up as a Christian. So we don't know how other people do it. I've always met Christians and I've always been attending a church. Meeting other people who are happen to also be Christians seems pretty normal to me in workplace. And just from my own personal experience, like for example, I used to be a civil servant because of 
colonialism, the civil service tends to be have a lot of Christians and both Protestant and Catholic. Yeah, we used to have like lunch groups where we like went to a church and like listened to um, testimonies or like we would sit together and watch some videos that's like Christian related. I don't know how other people do it, but I seem to meet a lot of Christians and that seems very common and not at all a surprise. It's just like, I'm also a Canadian. I did before, before very recently that we're able to vote in as absentee voters. I didn't even realize there's like 300,000 Canadians in Hong Kong. I mean, a lot of sense because there's like over 7 million people in the city. I feel like that's, that's both a lot and a little too little. I feel like everybody I know are also Canadians. So like, um, I was like, there's only 300,000. Are you sure? So yeah, like, I don't know how other people do it, but at least I'm not surprised at all that other people are Christians. Jillian, I'm really curious to what extent have millennials and have folks from Gen Z embraced Christianity? As I just mentioned about the petition, it was started by the Glorious Worship Ministry, which is a new church that's not like a brick and mortar church. There were many that also started in around and after the Umbrella Movement. A few that I know of is Umbrella Cyber Study Church and Glow Church. These are churches that are kind of gathering those who are like millennials, Gen Z, who are leaving the church because they find it difficult to relate to the sermon, the people there, mainly because as I was like writing a different article, I was looking at 2014 Hong Kong church census, around like 750 churches. So roughly 58.3% of the churches they surveyed, they feel like the youth are dissatisfied with their current church community and finds it difficult to fit into a church. In terms of the church social action efforts, the census also found that only around 146 churches, around 11.3% of the churches surveyed have participated in any protests or marches, and only 327 churches, so that's around 25.4% of the churches surveyed, encouraged their congregants to vote. You could see how the Gen Z and the millennials would find that situation dissatisfying, because those are the people that would be interested in social justice, participating in civic society. These new forms of churches, which are usually online or they have, they kind of move locations and have new forms of worship, such as like drama, that is very attractive for them. And so they have been kind of gathering these lost sheep. And obviously denominational churches have issues with that <laughs> because they are obviously gathering other people. I could see how millennials and Gen Z, especially second generation church attending, usually comes back from abroad, like having studied abroad, they will tend to want to go to English speaking churches. So there are efforts in like local Chinese speaking churches starting English service with them. But there are also the same issues that are in ethnic churches in North America, dealing with second generation exodus to English speaking churches as well. You mentioned some of these denominations that there were a whole lot of statements that came out. We focused on one in our kind of intro. I think you mentioned, was it Christian Missionary Alliance had a statement, some of these other churches. What were the nature of some of the evangelical churches that put out statements but but might have had more histories where they were a little bit more focused on piety and evangelism than on national politics? I first want to point out that churches, denominations themselves, were 
didn't put out a statement. Oh yeah, okay, denominations didn't. Okay, but some churches, some churches within those denominations might have. Well, no, actually, this is really interesting. And I don't know if this is unique in Hong Kong, but certainly very fascinating. In Hong Kong, like because denominations and churches don't want to get caught up, although they might support the cause, there is the issue of government registration and how that would work organizations. But they don't want to stop their congregants from making a statement. The statements are issued by like a bunch of Anglicans or like people who are Christian Missionary Airlines churches attending. It's very interesting in that these are people who are part of this denomination, but they don't represent the church officially. There are different statements that come out. And for example, for the Anglican church, um, they reacted towards the archbishop, what he's put out, because the archbishop is also part of the National People's Congress in China. They were reacting to that in the statement that they put out. It's a different way of issuing statements that I would have at least imagined. It's people who got together on their own initiative to do that. Interesting. Okay, so was there a certain kind of flavor of some of these statements that people within these churches were putting out if they were from more, I guess, traditionally evangelical or more conservative denominations versus the more mainline ones? Were they, Or were they all more or less in agreement with each other? Those who do put out a statement usually are condemning the national security laws, asking for it to be retracted. That's generally what they would say. But specifically for the Evangelical Free Church, they mentioned how they came from Scandinavia and wanting to be free from the government's control. And so that's why it's a free church. And so they're looking for that in what the regime here in Hong Kong. And for like the Anglican church, the the people who who put out the statement were um, commenting on the Archbishop Paul Pong and, and they were also like asking for it based on the Anglican church statement. They are talking about the church not having shouldn't be bowing down to regimes and injustice. Everybody was kind of reacting to what's happening, but also specifically to their denomination as well. I just think this inside baseball <laughs> of the statements is really interesting. The the war of different statements that are going on. Julian, I want to talk right now about these protests that have been in Hong Kong for the past year about how some of these churches that may have been reluctant to be involved politically may have been changing during that time, and also to the extent that there's been division that's causing these churches. So maybe you can give us a snapshot of some of the key things that have happened in this year with regards to the Hong Kong church and the protests. It's interesting to watch how things are quite different from 2013-2014 during the Occupy Central and Umbrella Movement because at that time the church was pretty silent. The church as a institution in its own, it's pretty silent. But like for, in 2019 actually, before the violence or force or vandalism, depending on how you see who's, who's the actor and what kind of act they're acting on, escalated the church in general actually were on the side of protesters there were there were some statements that's issued by denomination bodies obviously quite contested as well that were supporting the protesters 
which is quite different from what it was in the umbrella movement because at that time the church community's response varied. So some supported the cause because they believed that Christians should be a prophetic voice in the society, and some were opposed to the cause because they argued that Christians should submit to authorities. It could also be because they think they're they're talking about Guanxi and how being in association with the Chinese government, it would allow them to be able to reach the masses in China. And there's also others that argue that, like, perhaps rather than engaging in mass protests, maybe Christians should live their daily life as a form of protest, being like conscientious objector. So there was a lot of discussion of um, Stanley Howell's work at that time. But in 2019, there were relatively, there were, there were many more churches that issued statements condemning the extradition bill. There has been like suggestions that because the nature of the protests in 2014 and the one in 2019 is very different because the extradition bill is taking away existing freedoms while umbrella movement we're striving for universal suffrage so like it's gaining something that Hong Kong hasn't enjoyed yet that could be a reason why the Christian communities were more outspoken at that point but as the protest carries on and as there were more issues of vandalism and the church started to become more ambiguous in their response. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But there all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I'm curious, given that 
the church has been a target for persecution in mainland China, to what extent there are also self-interested concerns from churches and Christians about what this might mean for their freedom to worship? There, there are concerns for sure. Obviously, with the possible national security laws, we don't know what that means because it's unprecedented. We were passing Article 23 in the basic law, which is the Constitution of Hong Kong. Under Article 23, it asks the Hong Kong government to pass a national security law, which has been done already in Macau, but not in Hong Kong. Because in 2003, there were large protests that like around half a million people who protested against it. And so they retracted it. This time around, it's the... National People's Congress, who is going to implement this. We don't know how it would look like. It's entirely unprecedented. So it would be difficult to speculate what what kind of restrictions we would have. I think there are definitely concerns. But at the same time, people are still continuing to exercise their religious rights, uh, especially in face of the police not granting protest requests. Usually in Hong Kong, somebody wants to wants to hold a protest or a rally or demonstration, they would go to the police and apply for a letter of non-objection. Very recently, the police are very reluctant to issue these letters of objections because up to recently, they kind of just, like, as long as you apply, they would almost always say yes. Last year, there was an event where somebody applied and the police did give that the Chongqi Divinity School and the Chinese University of Hong Kong. There are a few students who, this is on the news, and this is also all over YouTube, so they decided to get together and start a prayer meeting, prayer walk outdoors, because it's they see it as their religious rights to get together and have religious functions. There's these different gatherings, although it has also been pointed out that actually you still have to apply something of some sort. In Hong Kong, people are still trying their best to use whatever rights they have right now, their religious freedom, to exercise their religious freedom. Of course, it is of concern. And I mean, people talk about it jokingly. <laughs> it, it, sometimes it's a, it's a little of a black humor. You, you mentioned that there's a lot of different kinds of responses from Christians. I mean, are there prominent Hong Kong Christians who believe that a closer relationship between Hong Kong and mainland China is a good thing, who are you know maybe not concerned about the new measures? Yes, definitely. Most prominently, Pa Kuang, so the Anglican Archbishop, and also Peter Kuhn, who's the Provincial Secretary of the Anglican Church. This is not to say everybody in the Anglican Church believes that, obviously, which is why they had this put forth. They enjoy a close relationship with the Chinese government. And the way they see it is that they are doing kind of the slow work. Being able to liaise with the Chinese government enables them to continue their education, their social welfare work in Hong Kong and possibly in China and be able to advocate for those who are in China and they're doing work that are that not seen in the general public for obvious reasons, because to advocate for other pastors in China would mean that this is not something that could, they could broadcast, shout to the world about it. That's how they see their work. Andrew Kwok, who you interviewed last year, a few weeks before your interview was broadcasted, he was chairing a panel 
with Peter Kim. And he also mentioned that in that panel about how this sort of work has been done slowly and kind of quietly. As Andrew mentioned, this is like an alternate, well, he called it alternate reality. But the way I see it is everybody reality is informed by their experience. And so and so their experience informs them of this particular reality, just as protesters who have been in the front line and and have seen pepper spray, their reality would be very, very different. I won't say it's an alternate reality, but it's just different forms of realities. To what extent do you think that the protests will help the church grow, Jillian? And to what extent do you think that they will just really lead to more infighting and really kind of undermine the place that the church has in Hong Kong society right now? I actually think it will help the church grow more than they would be leading to infighting because in 2014, there were a lot of divides between those who are for the protest and those who are against the protest and also like those who are, oh, we, sh- we need to exercise like nonviolent protest versus violent protest and how that works. But in 2019 and now actually, so those who are for the protests are, are now kind of working together. This is more a concept more broadly for Hong Kongers than it is specifically for Christian churches, but it's more brought into the Christian church. There are people who obviously, because of their theological convictions, they're against violence. And they are, there are those who see that this is probably the last straw and we need to give it everything. There's a term called warrior, but from, it's people who are for violent protests and people who are for civil disobedience and they're just working together and people who have different convictions are able to work together. And so I can't, I can't see how this would divide the church because having seen people in the church who perhaps are against violence, but they might drive, pick up protesters who from the protest areas um, because they're just driving there to pick people up. And there are those who are doing first aid. Everybody is sticking to their own conviction, but at the same time, they're working together. I think the current protest is not going to divide the church as much as it would actually bring people together. Yeah, I actually remember reading an article last year about several Christians who saw themselves as peacemakers between the police and the protesters, went around trying to de-escalate situations. So it is interesting to just think about all the different ways that the church has seen itself as being involved. I'm curious also, Jillian, if you might be able to weigh on on what type of effect that you think that this new move from the mainland is going to have in terms of how the Hong Kong church continues to grow or not, grow, sustain itself, thrive. Yeah, what type of effect it will have? One one thing that the protesters who are in the front line have a beef with is how people who are in Gen X, who are for civic civil disobedience, would would be the face of the protest because <laughs> obviously this is not a a protest that's been led by or organized by any parties. But at the same time, they can see how churches would tend to, or media outlets would tend to interview people who are already prominently known, perhaps in certain positions in societies, pastors, professors, lawyers, these younger generation who are out protesting um, would not be 
the demographic that would be interviewed by churches. Their beef with that is how their voices are not being heard because obviously they have their reasons and they feel like their reasons are not being represented. But it's not saying that they don't feel like they could work together with them, but they feel like there are talks between the two. But they also think that their voice could be represented better. Moving on to your question, I don't know. The short answer is I don't know, because as I mentioned, this is unprecedented and it's not done anywhere before. And there are speculations of what could possibly be written into it. But there's nothing out there that we could even base speculation on. And so I wish I could tell you what's going to happen. And I kind of for myself, I wish I knew, but I definitely don't know. You mentioned early on that Hauerwas has become, Stanley Hauerwas has become kind of influential, at least in some sectors of uh, Hong Kong Christians as they've been talking about that. Can you tell me a little bit about how that has kind of, how that's taken shape? You know, with Hauerwas, there's kind of a few different ways you can go with that. One in a similar way to how that conversation is happening with the U.S. You have the group that's a little bit like, let's focus on just building our Christian community, the kind of Benedict option as it's been kind of framed here, the Hauerwas via Rod Dreher mode, or can be this more historic Anabaptist can manifest itself in a little bit of, of protest against against the state. What is kind of the, the Hong Kong interpretation of Hauerwas? The Hong Kong interpretation of Hauas is mostly spearheaded by uh, the Baptists, Baptist theologians like Andreas Chang, Freeman Hoon, and Wow. And so they wrote a joint statement on that. They're thinking more of the let church be church to be the best Christian you can in your daily lives, how that would change as a daily protest. That kind of influences how they think about each different protest. So it's not like they're saying they can't go out for a protest, but they would like to consciously think about what that would mean and how that would each protest at each civil disobedience act is different. And so they want to think about it consciously and also how they would participate in the voting process. They want this to inform and be conscious in terms of how they do every action instead of just like a broad stroke of like, Yes, let's do this. And no, let's not do that. Are there any Hong Kong pastors or, or, or writers or theologians who are kind of emerging as voices amid all of this that the people outside their denominational tradition are kind of rallying to or, or reading or, or kind of passing around and discussing? One that is very AKOL online would be John Chan. He's the founder of Flow Church, so one of the churches that started after the Umbrella Movement. Uh, he's also a theology professor at, at a local seminary. He writes a lot on Facebook. He's also like a millennial, so he writes in a way that's accessible for millennials. So he has a huge influence. Another that is influential, not only in the Christian community, but also more widely, in, is Lap Yang Kong. He is a professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong in the um, Chongqi Divinity School because of his research in Christian ethics in Hong Kong theology, of course, also because he's in a public university. And so he's interviewed by not only Christian news media outlets, but also just general media outlets. He's a face to Christianity as well. Thanks, Jillian, for those names. Jillian, if you also don't mind sending me the names that we will put those in our show notes too, so people can look them up. 
As we wrap our conversation, I was just wondering if you would be willing to share a couple of things that our listeners should be praying for right now in Hong Kong and especially the church in Hong Kong. It would be great if your listeners could pray for guidance and clarity for church leaders and Christians in Hong Kong and how we're going to walk this path because I honestly have no idea what's going to happen next. I think there is also general sense of weariness and dread in what's going to happen. Obviously, this is entirely out of our control. There's nothing else we can rely on except on God. Well, thank you so much for this really fascinating conversation. I know I learned so much more about the church in Hong Kong right now. So really great stuff. For people who have questions or comments, please direct them either on Twitter, we're at CT Podcasts, or send us an email, we're at podcasts with an S at ChristianityToday.com. All right, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, where we ask everyone to share something that has brought them joy recently. Ted, it's you again. <laughs> I, I often get to go first. Morgan, we're still pretty much in lockdown here in Chicagoland, including with churches, but we had almost church. We're two or three gathered. We had two or three. So we were hanging out with some friends from church in a backyard on Saturday afternoon. And that was great. And then, you know, we were like, oh, it's almost time for church. And, you know, usually we, you know, scatter to our laptops or, you know, we plug our laptop into our, our big screen TV. And so we said, well, why don't we come over to our house? We'll switch backyards and we'll hook our laptop up to our big screen TV and move our big screen TV into the backyard. We did that, stayed socially distant, and we kept our six feet and all that stuff. Being at church with someone other than my immediate family members was fantastic. It was, I missed it. I missed it. I've missed it so much. That was our, our bit Your of Your setup joy sounds really week. fun. Was it a lot of work to move everything? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think last in last week's podcast, I mentioned that my son had his birthday party. And so we had just recently done it. You know, the cinder blocks that we could put the TV on were still there. We knew where to throw the chairs so that, you know, the sun wasn't in people's eyes. We were able to kind of recreate that in just a, a few minutes. We were able to set up even before the uh, processional. So... <laughs> processional is such a weird thing when there's no processing. I was just going to uh, ask. <laughs> yeah, but we still we still have our you know special music before the service. Is your church back? You're in a you're in a funny situation already because it was it was a small church. But what? Are, yeah, have you we been had able outdoor church connect? on Sunday. Yeah, that's great. Church at the park. Church at the park. Yeah, it's hard. We've we've our church has talked about that, but man, it's so tricky when you know the rules are such that like, well, you can't sing and can't have you know communion except in these very limited circumstances, and you can't you know all the stuff that makes an Anglican church rock. And most of it you can't do. It's kind of just getting together to hear the sermon. So it's we were like, ah, we're gonna stay video for a while. Yeah, we have more of a model where we can break up into smaller groups and discuss things and so yeah, forth. That's so great. That's what we end up doing. Ted Olson, that's Olson with an E. In case you don't have enough of Ted. You, can, yeah, exactly. Morgan, what's what was your joy this week? Your precious moment? I mean, I also have the same precious moments every single week. Most of them have to do with just being outside for long stretches of time. But one of the things that I did in the many hours, I literally spent almost all weekend outside, was I have a writing group that meets once a month. Our writing group, not surprisingly, had gone online for the past couple months. And so we did get to be in the park, do some writing. And it's full of people. Some of the people in the group know each other really well. And some people in the group don't know each other that well at all. So it's kind of eclectic, um, 
group of people that kind of get to know each other primarily through writing. And I think that's kind of a cool way to connect with folks. I'm just really grateful that that group still exists. I started it last February, I want to say. And so it's been great to see how much people are willing to commit to something that is Essentially, there's a prompt, and then we write for 12 minutes, and then read what we have done. Oh, so this is this is not like you're talking. You, you're talking about your writing. You're actually writing in the park. Yes. Wow, that's great. That's basically what it is. It's not necessarily like you bring your stuff that you've worked on. A little different. All right, people can find me at M E P A Y N L. Jillian, you want to go? Mine is quite similar to yours, actually, because I go on academic writing retreats a lot, and so they're usually based in Scotland, but People come from all over the place. And so it's nice to make friends. We're back wherever we're from. And so it's kind of hard to like get together. And so all the Zooming has given us the chance to kind of write together again. So like I meet up with friends in Toronto and Finland and Netherlands and just kind of write. And so it's ah, great. That's great. That's awesome. How do you guys pick a time though? I know. Yeah. So usually... Because now I work in UK time, even though I'm I'm in Hong Kong right now, it kind of time zone is not <laughs> a thing for me anymore. <laughs> and so I just kind of work whatever works with other people. So what time Hong Kong are you waking up every day? I usually wake up around noon, which if we're thinking about UK time, I'm waking up super early. <laughs> and I can start work around like four because that's around nine in the UK. That sounds that sounds that sounds brutal. All right, Jillian, where can people find you outside of this? So I'm on Twitter and my Twitter handle is a Jillian Chu. That is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. Support the show by becoming a subscriber to Christianity Today magazine and do that by going to orderct.com slash podcast. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Linder. Transcript is done by Bumi Ashola. The music is by Sweeps. You can rate and review the show. I would love just some new, I don't know, thoughts from people. I was reading through our reviews last week and I was like, what is some more recent feedback? So if you want to give more recent feedback, obviously you can do that by sending us an email at podcastatchristianitytoday.com. That is great for specific episodes. If you have large slots overall, go ahead to Apple Podcasts and stick them there. I do read them. And the podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you all next week. Bye.